Welcome to The Bill Walton Show, featuring conversations with leaders, entrepreneurs, artists and thinkers. Fresh perspectives on money, culture, politics and human flourishing. Interesting people, interesting things. Welcome to The Bill Walton Show. I'm Bill Walton. This week, Americans for Limited Government published a provocative and insightful piece about the banking system asking, has the United States banking system become too big to save? Here's the gist. In the past three years, U.S. Treasuries have increased by $7.5 trillion to finance massive spending bills that have increased our federal debt to almost a little over $31 trillion. Uh, $3 trillion of the treasuries were bought by the Federal Reserve, a.k.a. monetizing the debt, uh, which means, but it means the other $4 trillion were bought by U.S. financial institutions at a time when interest rates were far lower than they are today. Uh, what that may mean is that banks are sitting on more than $600 billion of unrealized losses in these bonds. Uh, Silicon Valley Bank looks to be the canary in the coal line and maybe the first of many uh, balance sheets are going to blow up because of mismanagement of both our fiscal and our monetary policy. Uh, the banking crisis, crises of the past quarter century have led to greater and greater centralization of our banking system, where socializing the risks, as they call it, or, or, or too big to fail, which basically means tax, taxpayers pick up the tabs for losses. Uh, where this looks to be heading is towards a wholly government-based financial system where everyone's bank becomes the Federal Reserve. And our money becomes a so-called central bank digital currency, which will give the federal government power over most of all of our personal financial matters and our lives. Far-fetched? I don't think so. <laughs> And joining me to talk this through is Rick Manning, president of Americans for Limited Government, and its vice president, Robert Romano, author of the piece. Uh, I saw Rick recently at CPAC and told him, I like what they're writing. And he said, I sure hope so. Each one is a result of the two of us arguing for about half a day over the issues. <laughs> and when I heard that, I thought, I want to join in that argument <laughs> and get into, get into learning about what we think is happening. I think generally we're on the same page about where this might be going, but I think there's an off. It's, it's complicated. It's opaque. Almost nobody understands it. And so our goal today is to try to simplify it for what's at stake for, you know, regular people like us. Well, thanks for having us, Bill. And I, I will tell you that process is, um, I think, really necessary for the really process getting, with you and Robert. The process with Robert and I, and, and now with you, yeah. is necessary to really get to the bottom of things because you have to question all the assumptions. You have to question everything about how we got here. You can't just say we're here and accept, and accept that there's a pathway that's, uh, that doesn't include an examination of how we got here and what the people who are got us here are actually trying to do. We're for limited government. We don't want a nationalized bank system. We don't want a system that where banks are, there's no risk involved in banks because no risk means that you don't have real capitalism. You don't have the market. You don't have the market protections for the banking system because you don't have people competing. And when you have a banking system that's based basically on how, what, how low they can get the money from the Fed so they can make a profit on the treasury bills, then that's a, that's a system that's doomed to fail because treasury bills go up and down based on markets and based on the supply and demand of the marketplace. So we have a doomed to fail system because the way it's been set up and we, because we of have a, We have a doomed to fail uh, system? Yeah, because the way it's set up is it's set up based around, based around a dependency on government debt. And, a and the trading on government debt, and it was all for the last 10 years, 15 years, it's been dependent on that government debt becoming more and more, the interest rates going down, but the cost of the debt going down also, so they had a guaranteed profit. And that's where you end up with a, with a challenge in terms of the, bottom, the banking system's uh, overall capacity. Robert? Well, that's uh, six trillion of new money that was created under M2 from the 7.5 trillion treasuries, um, and that was that was a 43 percent increase since February of 2020, um, which pr created the inflation. Which then the Fed, though, never raised interest rates until after Russia invaded Ukraine. By that time, inflation was already at 7.5 percent. 
um, and they've been hiking rates ever since. We just had another rate hike. We're up to 4.75 to 5% now on the federal funds rate, and they're still not above the consumer price index, which is at 6% right now. So everyone's still expecting more interest rate hikes, at least one more this year alone. Um, and what usually that, ha that happens right before a recession is they're going to bring the funds rate right above the uh, consumer well, prices. Could, could I boil this down, though? The banks bought treasuries, fixed rate, most of them. They bought them when rates were one and a half, two 2%. Correct. And the way bonds are priced is that if interest rates go up, and let's say they go to five or six percent, all of a sudden those bonds you bought at one and a half percent, you can't get you can't get a hundred cents on the dollar for them. Correct. You can get ninety cents or eighty-five cents or eighty cents. So it means if you're looking at your balance sheet, what you thought was worth a hundred cents is now really worth much less. And that's right. happened throughout the throughout the banking system. Correct. Absolutely. But, but as you know, in the banking system, you count what the value of the bond is, not what you can sell it for now. So if you have a bond that has a $1,000 value, to make it easy, a $1,000 value, but because interest rates have, have turned, turned around on you and you can only sell it for $850, it's counted on your balance sheet as being $1,000 worth of asset. Well, Even, but, but that's what the, that sounds like China. Well, that, I mean, China didn't, it, what an interest rate phenomenon, but China had banks, a lot of its banks had billions, if not trillion dollars of real estate investments and loans that went this way, and the Chinese decided to keep those at par, even though they were worthless. And so they've got many, many, many what they call zombie banks right. in, in China. And it, our fear here is that we end up with zombie banks here in the United States where the assets are worth a lot, worth, worth a lot less than we, uh, we see on the balance sheet. Yeah, the, the interesting challenge on this is under the when they essentially nationalized uh, Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank, um, they bought the treasuries, they essentially bought the treasuries for full par value. Right, it's the bank so, term lending facility so, that they just established. It's explicitly for a year they get to um, consider that at 100 uh, cent pennies on the dollar. Um, they can, you know, here, give us your treasuries. Now, what I think is going to happen at the end of this, if it gets worse, is they're going to end up, the Fed's just going to end up buying them back at 100 pennies on the dollar, just like they did um, in 2009 when Bernanke did the mortgage-backed securities um, buyout, which is now up to $2.6 trillion the Fed has on its balance sheet right now. And they're, uh, those are agency back. Those are Fannie and Freddie bonds that everyone was upside down how big, on. How big is the bank, the Fed balance sheet now? $8.2 uh, And what was it uh, in 2008? About $800 billion. It's up tenfold. And what, where'd that, all that money go to? Buying, buying By mortgage treasuries, bonds? yeah, they have about five, uh, more than five trillion of, of of U.S. treasuries right now, and then they have the two point six trillion of mortgage-backed securities at the moment. And so that's how we end up with the inflation, which is when the treasury buys issues a bond and the Fed buys it, that becomes money, and money gets flushed around, and that's why we've got six percent, seven percent inflation. It peaked at nine percent, more than nine percent in June twenty twenty-two. Well, let's do it. Let's do a little trip down memory lane in the United States used to have a, a Wild West banking system. We had every, every state had a couple thousand banks in it. You know, mm -hmm. it's like the old Wild West where you'd have a saloon and a bank. <laughs> and, and as recently as I think 1960, we had 14,000 banks in the United mm -hmm. States. And that's now down to uh, about 5,000. And those 14,000, 5,000, those 9,000 that disappeared, it was through the, the mortgage crisis, the SNL crisis. I mean, what happened? Why did all those banks disappear? Well, it was also because we made a decision 30 some years ago to nationalize the bank, the banking system, so they could do business outside state lines. And so the small in state banks got bought by bigger banks that wanted to have a footprint. I remember so, that. So we passed the rule. It used to be if you're a bank, you had to bank in only in your own state, and then they made it cross-border, and that, that, that shoved the smaller banks. And, and so a business. lot of smaller banks then got consolidated. And, what we, and then we had the SNL crisis, which did the same, had the same thing where savings and loans right. were essentially gobbled up um, into the banking system. So, you've got a, so the system has been over the last 30, 35 years, maybe 25 years, a consolidating system where every crisis is met with a with an opportunity for the big banks 
to take over the little banks. And that's what happened in the 80s with the SNL crisis. If you read the Federal Reserve's history on that, it was once again being upside down on interest rates, which had to go up in order to tame the inflation of the 1970s and the early 1980s. So every time we go through this process where we're printing too much money, we're spending too much money, uh, again, $7.5 trillion of marketable treasuries was done for COVID so that we could do production halts, so that we could do economic lockdowns, so that we could pay people not to work. And so you had too much money chasing too few goods. Um, by definition, um, that is the inflation right there. Is you don't produce enough goods on purpose, and you print too much money on purpose. And the Fed couldn't figure out that there was going to be a mismatch. Um, is beyond me. Why didn't they raise interest rates in 2021 when they had the chance to get this under control was beyond us. Well, I, I think I think their excuse was that we were still, quote unquote, recovering from the um, from the shock, the shock of COVID. But, you know, where we where we really saw, in, in my estimation, we ended up with ego getting involved in our policy. And, and I will say President Trump in the last stimulus that was done in December of 2020, and then Joe Biden with a $1.9 trillion stimulus that was done in, uh, in almost three, like three months before, after you took office in 2021, um, just ignited, a, ignited the inflation because a lot of the money that had been sent out in the, during COVID was sent out to basically keep people employed and things like that. The rest of it was sti just stimulative. It was designed to be stimulative. And truthfully, I think the Biden was mainly because he wanted to send people checks with his name on it. It really had no, no economic value, and we were already recovered. Well, Trump wanted to do that, well, too. No, no doubt. And no I'm, doubt. A, I'm, I'm a big, I, I like Donald Trump, but he, There's no he definitely he wanted, wanted to and, see that. Well, Trump he spent more than Biden did and, when and, you and actually just, added he, up. He spent more, yeah. And, and it was just, hardly. And I'm, I'm, I differentiate <laughs> him. I differentiate him. And we, we, we can pile on Joe Biden and, all we want uh, here. I know. We can, <laughs> I, I'll tell you why, how I differentiate it. We made a decision, Americans for Limited Government, to support the short-term things that were done to try to make sure small businesses didn't collapse. When the government made a decision that they were going to shut down the economy, that they were not going to allow people to actually make a living and weren't going to allow people to actually go out and visit a restaurant or go to the gro local grocery store or the like, and they kept the Walmarts open, they kept the Amazons open, but they wouldn't keep any, they wouldn't let the small businesses be open. When they made that decision, the government breaks it. The government has a responsibility to try to, try to make sure it doesn't comp go completely to shambles. And so we supported that initially because, quite honestly, it was the only way we could see not falling into a massive depression uh, with people losing their jobs and, and being essentially destroyed. And all the same, and, 25 and, million jobs were and, lost by April of 2020. But by the time Trump was leaving office, 16 million of those jobs had already been recovered. And I think uh, you, it, attributing that to the Paycheck Protection Program, I, 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 think, it, I think that's spot on. Um, it, so we, it, it was a wise policy, we, we, considering the fact we didn't know how long we were going to be locked down. We didn't know how bad the virus, how deadly it actually was. Thank goodness it became less deadly uh, as it mutated. Um, but the fact is, is that most of the recovery was already in place by the time uh, Biden came in. And what Trump's comment has been since then, um, especially after the inflation, was that all Biden had to do was just sit back and watch as the economy fully reopened for the rest of the year um, in 2021. Instead, well, they said, let's do a few more trillion. Well, and the irony, of course, is the reason the economy hadn't fully reopened when Trump was there was because Democrat governors in big states didn't want to give Trump credit for fully recovering the economy. So they deliberately kept their economies closed until Biden became president. Then they started reopening their economies. So you saw California, New York, Pennsylvania, others have, have their jobs, job losses basically got sucked up because they did the same thing that Texas, Florida did in June, July, August of 2020. They just did it six months later for political purposes. Essentially, they put their own, their own uh, people, their own, their own population, their voters, they put a gun to their head and said, we're not gonna allow you to prosper for until after Donald Trump's out, because there's nothing more important than stopping Donald Trump. This is the Bill Walton Show. I'm here with Rick Manning and Robert Romano of Americans for Limited Government. And they're shocking me with this idea that politicians put their interest ahead of the voters <laughs> and the American people. And there's gambling going on in the CETO, definite, casino. We're but, shocked. But the thing is, I think the parallel between what happened with the lockdowns and what's happening now with the banks is that, you know, big picture, 
the left is a is a enemy of the market. They're an enemy of small business, of entrepreneurship, of civil society. Mm-hmm. And what happened with the lockdowns was they took out tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of businesses, some of whom recovered, but most many of them did not. Correct. And they had this, you had this ridiculous situation where Lowe's was kept open, and it was a Gretchen Whitmer in Michigan decided that this department in Lowe's was essential, and this other department was non-essential. Yeah, they wouldn't them to buy seeds so they could grow their own food. Um, in the uh, in like Home Depot or Lowe's, so they but, wouldn't allow to buy gardening stuff because they want people to go out and actually make grow their own food and be self. And they have, they have this filter. they have the, they have this hostility towards self reliance. Yes, 100%. because they don't want you to be free of their power. Self reliance means you're not reliant on them. Absolutely. And this may sound like a conspiracy to those who are listening and watching, and it is a conspiracy, and that is what they do. It's, it's, and that's exactly, what we need to well, worry about, and that's why I'm worried about this banking situation right. because. They don't like small banks and medium-sized banks even more than even any more than they like small business and medium business. They would just assume they they went away, because it'd be a lot easier for the federal government to control a much smaller banking system and control it the way they do J.P. Morgan and and Wells Fargo and and uh, uh, what's the other one in there? Citibank and and, and Wells. You got the four big ones. They don't. They would be happy with a banking system that had 500 banks in it. I think. I think that's where this is headed. In fact, in Dodd Frank, there was a mechanism to bring these companies into receivership, these small and medium, if they pose a systemic risk. That's exactly what they did with Silicon Valley Bank. And there, there's no incentive now. Go, go to, slower on that. Explain a little bit. What do you mean systemic? What did they do? Just they, take they, it down. Applying the, they followed the law. The law says that if the Treasury and the Federal Reserve and the FDIC wave a magic wand and say you're systemically risky, they can take that company into receivership, wipe out the bondholders, wipe out the shareholders, and there's no incentive now to hold on to those stocks. Which is why the regional banking index the past month is down 29 percent. First Republic has been under a lot of pressure, down 88% in the past month alone. And this is the mechanism, a perverse incentive in Dodd-Frank to put pressure on the small and medium. And then the only solution is further consolidation, more receivership. And you're going to put these, you can, what if the bigger banks start getting similar pressure, I think is where this is going. But the key is the bigger banks are protected and are too big to fail. And so the bigger banks are guaranteed under Dodd-Frank that they can't fail, that we're going to bail them out. What does that mean exactly? They made does that a mean basically that, they're that, going to flood them with cash or something? Uh... The, mechan- the internal mechanism that's supposed to work is that the banks are going to actually have to pay a higher rate, which means their depositors right, the assessments. And, and are going to have higher assessments. And it's going to basically it's a backhanded way of taxing people because they're just going to tax the people actually – um, have their deposits to the banks. You're not going to be able to get paid for interest for your various accounts and the like. But that's how they they, they outsource it. it. And they devised and Congress devised it that way on purpose. Because Congress really, really hated when they had to make votes about whether to bail out Lehman Brothers and the like. Um, they hated that. And remember that when they were having those votes, the Republicans in the House didn't vote for the bailouts the first day. They said no and and they, they got pounded by Wall Street, and the next day they collapsed and they voted for the bailouts. Well, the Republicans, would, when Dodd-Frank came around, which was two years later, they said nobody in Congress wanted to have that vote. So they outsourced the decision-making to this, council. to this council. And the challenge with the systemic risk is, is twofold. It's not a defined term. So they found, for instance, Silicon Valley Bank to have systemic risk because it was a bunch of lefties who who had their deposits there, who were investing in, who, who were investing in things they liked, and were engaged in woke capitalism in, in terms of the uh, Silicon Valley uh, startups and the like, all green agenda stuff. So they said, no, that's systemic risk. We can't allow those people to to lose. But if you have a bank in Oklahoma and your bank is mainly uh, people are drilling and and taking and wildcatters and the like. They're not going to get. They're not going to get bailed out. They're not going to have more than two hundred fifty thousand dollars covered. Sort of like East Palestine's uh, disaster right. relief yeah. aid East, that East never Palestine came. Doesn't count. But if they because they all in, voted for Trump. If, yeah, but if they'd been in San Francisco, you darn bet that every single federal well, government official let's, been let's, there. Let's 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 look at Silicon Valley. I mean, as I understand it, I've heard different numbers. Only five to fifteen percent of their deposits were covered by the two hundred fifty thousand dollars insurance cap. 
Which, what's your number? Is it? It's a, it was 90% were un, uninsured. Okay, so 10% was, was yeah. insured. So I meant 90% were was the uninsured. Second, they were the second most, uh, had the second most exposure in terms of all the banks. Well, and, and, and who, were their, who were their clients? The clients were all the big VC firms and all the big venture capital investment firms. Also big firms. companies like Raku. And every single one of them, I, I think I could probably say every single one of that exception, is a big Democrat donor. The only one who wasn't Peter Thiel. He, Did he, Peter Thiel have yeah, money in Silicon Valley? He had 50, what was it, 50 million in there? But, well, he directed, he advised he, people he, pull out about 40 his founder, billion. His founder's fund was the first ones who said, wait a second, this isn't solvent. And, pull, and he sent advice out to people who was, he was. Right. Uh, and then everybody in Silicon said, Valley got so, on Twitter and said, let's so, get out yeah, of here. So it, it, was our first, it was but, our first virtual bank had, run. Yeah, but Thiel, Thiel had 50, I think $50 million dollars. A personal cash in that uh, he would have got two hundred fifty thousand back. Okay. Well, anyway, look, but but except for except that, for I, Peter Thiel, okay, okay. Uh, sorry, it I, was it was primarily primarily people are on 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 the left, true. and they were and they bailed them out, and and it, it's egregious where they're just taking and and I understand Signature Bank is is similarly favored because they've got a lot of depositors who are Democrat and on the left. Barney Frank was on the board. Yeah, and then the other one, First Republic, is almost in the same category. It's, it's, it's in similar, California. Very similar to Silicon Valley Bank. It has yes. a lot of uninsured deposits as well. But um, in fact, it was uh, uh, Silicon Valley saying, we need to raise $2.25 billion of more capital that preceded the Founders Fund and everyone else saying that they needed to get out because, oh, the uninsured but, deposits but, but these were these were big boys that put their money into these yes. institutions. They knew the $250,000 rule, yes. and yet they figured, well, there's really not that much risk because we are who we are, and they're going to bail us out if well, there's and, a problem. And that's, in fact, what happened. That's exactly what happened. And if it happened to you or me, we would have been creamed. That's a, you know, and so the rest of us have to follow the 250000 rule. No. Well, if it's above that, we're risking that. And they didn't have to. That's where I see this as much more than just a traditional banking crisis, financial crisis. I think there's a political agenda at work here that's really deeply concerning. Yeah, it's why... It's part of the weaponization of our money theme. Well, you know, it's... Let's put it this way. The old days of where you sit there and it's based on... Decisions in Washington are based upon... uh, various facts other than who gets hurt and who gets helped. Those states don't exist. If they ever did exist, they certainly don't exist now. The first and foremost consideration is who gets hurt and who gets helped. And that's a political decision. And if you're, you happen to be, have invested in the right candidate, you get helped. And if you didn't, you get hurt. And that's the problem with crony, corporate cronyism all throughout the system. Well, the weaponization of the government or the, the you know, the, under Joe Biden, we've seen a weaponization of the government to yep. push diversity, equity, and inclusion. We've seen the ESG, environmental, social, and governments pushed. And that's essentially a shorthand for climate, climate initiatives. I mean, there's a little bit of S and G in there, but it's mainly, it's mainly climate. Then the climate agenda is as we know, the left agenda. and I, But I think it's not just the agencies that have been weaponized. The regulators have been weaponized. I mean, if you look at the Federal Reserve, look at the Federal Reserve Bank of San Francisco. The head of that is a woman who, would she get her PhD in uh, gender studies or... or I'm all for gender, but I'm just think, saying it's not exactly a... Deg- it's not a degree in, in, in banking... Pr- banking. I, I can make a joke about. It. I studied gender. At, I, I would like it. I also. would like. I would like to hear something funny. But, but I, I studied gender a lot in, in college, but at University of Southern California. But the truth of the matter is, I didn't get a degree in it. Okay, so it's a uh, nobody. So you studied gender. I, I was. I was studying it closely. Uh, but it's a, and I think most guys would admit that they were too. Uh, so, hey, I found my wife there. We've been married for over forty years. I did. I, I did. I did well. In my gender so studies gender degree. Studies, my, it worked. I don't think that's what she's doing. <laughs> but you not know, what they writing, had in mind. They're writing. You know, they've got all sorts. Go on their website and look at the papers they write on the website about the fact that that monetary policy ought to be based on social justice and equity. That's so dangerous. So dangerous. Um, and if you look at the perverse incentives that are in ESG and the regulations that have pushed retirement savings into that, there's about, uh, more than 30 trillion of retirement savings 
Unfortunately, the Labor Department only addresses about one-third of that um, in, in terms of the regulations. We haven't even been really able to tackle this, I think, from the Republican side of this question well, for more than 15 years. Well, I had Pat Fazell on. You know, he was a right. deputy, he was deputy, deputy secretary. Briefly acting secretary, and they put together some rules that didn't allow uh, pension managers to use ESG. I don't know. You're making a face. Maybe it uh, wasn't as tough as we uh, all yeah, would have liked. I, I, I wish. They, they, made it, but, they made an attempt to do that. The challenge is in the, the law that they have to write it under. All you have to do is make sure they that the decisions are based on fiduciary concerns and not other concerns. Right. And so you can invest in if the government is picking winners and losers. So the problem is you guys, you know the minutiae of all this. I know. Stuff. Sorry okay. about that. <laughs> I'd say I, I was at the Labor Department and the Bush administration in the first okay, ESG. Okay, well, so you really the, know. The, it the was first, the same thing. The first ESG guidance at that time came out in 2008. I was the PR guy who had to sell it. And uh, we got great press on it. And I got in trouble for it. But nonetheless, <laughs> the, um, it was a... No but, good deed. But it was, in <laughs> fact, at the time, it made sense because ESG was... We're going to invest in crazy stuff, and it's not profitable. Twelve years later, the same language was no longer no longer sufficient, because the fact is, because of the government incentives that have been built into the system to push the environmental stuff, investing in coal didn't make sense, but investing in windmills did, and and so when the government Can, picked winners and losers, but that's that changed the changed the investing dynamic. I, I totally agree with you. Let me amplify. The way I would say it is that coal subjected to free market uh, return on investment, return on capital, that sort of thing, and it's also out of favor, and so it's losing its customer base, so it's right. not a good investment. Wind and solar, because of uh, uh, subsidies, government money coming into it, has become investable, but it's only because of trillions of dollars of uh, taxpayer subsidies and, and outright uh, uh, finance, government financing for it that it has become investable. So we've got this blurring of uh, of the capital markets where it's been so distorted by uh, Robert. Well, there, you have these um, BlackRock and Vanguard are able to take over even the boards of directors of companies like Exxon with the goal of restricting the energy supply, which raises prices and resulted in record profits. So if the uh, Republican rule on this is only going to address whether or not it's profitable, we'll never get to the bottom of it. I just say it violates antitrust to price gouge the American people like that. So maybe they should apply antitrust to no, no retirement investments into companies that are violent antitrust. If they're doing racial and gender hiring quotas, uh, that violates Title VII of the Civil Rights Act. They could restrict that and say, hey, let's, uh, I don't know, enforce the law. What a crazy idea. Huh. Actually, you know, and enforce the law is a... State AGs can do this, okay? If somebody's engaged in racial preference hiring against against the laws of the state, or the feds, or the feds, the state AGs can actually go after it. So in states like Texas, go can after it. You mean go after ESG, companies, companies ESG. that are engaged in ESG on the on the personnel side, doing the equity hiring and the like, because that in essence is a violation of of the Constitution itself, which says. Equal protection. You're not, equal protection. You're not allowed to make a choice based on the color of somebody's skin. John Robertson hearing a case, the case on uh, on North Carolina, University of North Carolina and Harvard, where they're doing racial preferences for admissions and denying Asians the ability to get into the schools um, and preferring other races. He said, I thought we, sound, we fought a civil war about this about 160 years ago. Didn't we get this settled? And the University of North Carolina and Harvard, which we're trying to provide, uh, kind of defend the racial preference admission standards had no answer. No. So this is a so I think that that's we're going to see the Supreme Court go after that, which will then harden the capacity to go after these companies that are doing ESG and force them to to back away from that and start hiring on merit. Because when you don't hire on merit, when you don't do things on merit, you lose and, you're, and we no longer succeed as a country. Okay. Uh this is the Bill Walton Show, and I'm here with Rick Banning and Robert Romano of Americans for Limited Government. And this, I thought this would be a wide-ranging conversation. We've gone from interest rates to admission <laughs> policy at Harvard. <laughs> True enough. <laughs> but, but remember, Harvard still has a $50 billion endowment, so they're doing okay. They're doing okay. But let's, let's, let's wander back into banking, since that's sure. sort of what our topic is, although I think everything's our topic. We talked about Silicon Valley 
I don't think it, we talked about ESG and the woke kind of things they did. They didn't go broke because they were woke. I mean, they, and I read something today I thought was very good. They went broke because they were spending all their management time and attention on being woke, and they weren't spending any management time and attention on interest rate and balance sheet management. And, you know, had somebody been not thinking about all the great social things they ought to be doing and instead focusing on their balance sheet, they would have noticed that they had this mounting loss in, uh, in their bond portfolio, and they would have begun to hedge that, and they would have gotten themselves out from under this. Yet they went for nine months without a risk manager. Instead, they had a diversity, equity, and inclusion person in that job. What a distraction. But, uh, yeah, Jerome Powell was just saying in his press conference after the Fed meeting that they definitely were not um, managing what they called the duration risk in terms of having these long-term bonds. On duration their risk, amplify. What's well, if you just buy a 10-year bond, you've got to wait for that thing to come to maturity. Um, if you buy a one-year or three-month, you you know you can hold on to it for so a little while. the durations, you got to hold it to get paid 100 cents on a dollar. And Precisely. In the meantime, it can be worth almost nothing because of high interest rates. And, and a shorter-term bond, which matures faster, doesn't drop as much in value. Exactly. Okay, value. I just wanted to... Better not need cash, right? For those for those non-walks who are paying attention, I try to explain trust me, that. We've, <laughs> we've had to learn more about the banking system than we ever wanted to know. I just wanted to go and give them my money and assume it was going to be safe. Okay, that's what I wanted to know. Yeah. But they forced us to have to learn about how this works. And you're exactly right. Your initial premise is exactly right. This is an attempt to consolidate the banking system so it's more controllable. And to, by, why they want it more controllable is because they do want to go to digital currency. They want to go to digital currency for everybody and not allow you to have cash in your hand, not allow you to, uh, you have to essentially ask permission. And if you believe, don't believe that, try to take $10,000 out of the bank right now without and not have them, the Treasury's notified when you try to take more than a certain well, amount we've out. We've had a 10,000 rule for decades, though. So. Exactly right. But you see, it's the precedent. It's the precedent that they can set that there is there are triggers. So if I go to my bank and I take out 9950 do you think they notify the feds that somebody's doing that? Yes. So that 10000 rule is simply what you can't get at the teller, but you you end up in their system. There's a notification. A put out, we've, got a, we've got a customer here who's pulling out lots of cash. They've got that data. They, and, uh, and so I, I think since the financial crisis, they even have better data now. And so they can see where the runs are occurring in real time. You know, because I've had those people say, gee, our currency, you know, you're going to need currency in case we have some cataclysmic crash. And I, I think, well, if I go to the bank and start looking at 5, 10, 20,000, even if I send Sarah to do it, there's, she's, she's, I'm sure she's on camera. She's very suspicious. But uh, <laughs> they're still going to put you on a list and they're still going to manage that. And central bank digital currencies just take that totally out of the equation because, in effect, your your checking account is an, on the on a ledger at the Federal Reserve. One hundred percent. The reason I brought up the ten thousand is because it's the predicate. Yeah, they've already started having yeah. a me measuring that, and so and now this, the system's built. It's actually built to try to drive people into using strict digital currency, get us used to only using credit cards. And use the big banks. Cash, and use the big banks. So who wrote the regulations? The big banks. Precisely. Yeah. I think that's what the incentive was with Dodd-Frank and when you would get to this situation again. Uh, I don't know, if, like, was this a, is this an unintended consequence? Um, they seem to be unprepared for it. Um, when Silicon Valley Bank was going down. So I think that um, I think the regulators were caught by surprise. I think the Board of Governors was caught by surprise. So I'll just favor the idea that this was an unintended consequence because Congress should really re-examine what was done with Dodd-Frank, which I really, that, that orderly liquidation fund, which is what they're using, is a... Uh, They're not going to unwind Dodd-Frank. Well, it's a lethal threat, though, to the private sector if Treasury and the Federal Reserve and the FDIC can just say that a financial company or a non-bank non financial-style company can be... But they're be, never going to give up that power. They can just take over any company in America under that right, onus right and say, now. you're systemically risky. Yeah. Well, let, I've used this story way too many times, so bear with me if you've ever heard it. But, you know, Jamie Dimon and Lloyd Blankfein, who was at the time chairman of... CEO of Goldman Sachs after Dodd-Frank passed several years later were at an, investment, an investor conference getting telling people about why they should invest in their banks. And they said, well, you know, Dodd-Frank 
basically built a, a, an economic moat around our business model. And it's the capital requirements and the regulatory requirements are so high now because of Dodd-Frank that you can't start something new to compete with this. And the proof is what's happened with community banks in America, and this is my world, the entrepreneurial world, there used to be 70, 80, 90, 150 community banks started every year, mm -hmm. entrepreneurs deciding they wanted to do something. Since Dodd-Frank, I think we've had a total of about, I've heard as low as five, I've heard as many as 15, but that's over a 12-year period. And so new, new bank creation has been, been halted, been brought to a halt. And these people, and, and J.P. Morgan, just to put the icing on the cake last year, had return on equity of 18%. Mm. And banks like that used to be around 8%. Right. So that regulatory barrier that they've got and that protection from the government is massively profitable. It's a regulatory capture um, when you when you create a favorable. Well, I think they've captured the regulator. <laughs> well, no, what I mean by that, though, is it, well, it, I guess that is what it means, though. It, it means that the, the, the bigger entities are then able to, via the regulations, they're the only ones who can meet up with those requirements, plus they're too big to fail. So you result in more consolidation, what we were um, referring to earlier. That, and I do believe that that is a part of the plan there, is to get fewer and fewer banks. And then you can move, you say, oh, well, if it's too risky to go withdraw money from the bank, no more cash. Um, and that, I think that's where you wind up. You get to the end game. And we're getting there quickly. Well, the other, the other thing that is a proof point on it, under the Obama administration, there was an active policy to debank certain industries and use the, the banking system and pressure banks to get out of guns, gun, gun dealers gun dealers in particular. Right, that's, and that's part and, of the ESG so, thing as well. That's one thing, also part of the ESG thing, which is puts private capital um, into that game to encourage people and give leverage to force people to debank. So we already have a, a, a federal banking system that is actively seeking to debank unfavored enterprises and yeah. unfavored people. When you put on top of that digital banking system, which then allows for them to control the actual flow of capital to individuals and decide what that flow is going to be to individuals, no matter how much is in your account, when you combine the debanking with the unfavorable, with the idea that they're going to control your capital flows, at that point you have complete control over somebody's wealth, and it's no longer your money anymore. It's theirs because they determine whether you can use it or not. That's why Congress Republicans really should be protecting entrepreneurship. They should be protecting small businesses. I think that's why they're elected. Um, but when you look at federal law, there's nothing protecting um, somebody from being removed from a big bank, which we're going to need now, right? Would you want to put your money into one of the smaller banks for protection if they're not protected? Um, but nothing that prevents political discrimination at these financial institutions, although there are civil rights protections in banking law, Republicans should propose expanding that franchise, I believe, because we're we need those protections. Small businesses, um, really small businesses, are getting discriminated right now because of Section 230 on social media platforms, but also on crowdfunding platforms, which have Section 230. They're not banks. Um, but people get discriminated on those platforms. So if you want to go out and start a small business right now on the internet using e-commerce, you're going to be depending on financial so wonder, institutions that have it in for you. I wonder when you, I wonder when YouTube and Google are going to find talking about central bank digital currencies in opposition is something they ought to censor. I'm I'm wondering whether or not this you hopefully know this show today. has been pulled hopefully once, not today a couple of times from yeah. YouTube uh, hopefully not of, today because of the masks and vaccine discussions right. we've had. Well, you know this is this is dangerous discussion. I'm not a big fan actually, of either. It's actually true. Yeah. Um, and it's a and it's something that people should be aware of. Um, I am going to say one thing though we we really dodged a bullet because the uh, Jerome Powell was reappointed to be chairman of the Fed, and. That wasn't Biden's first, President Biden's first choice. His first choice was a, a woman who, and I don't remember her name, unfortunately, but somebody who was really believed that bank, the Fed's job was to enforce ESG, and their job was to engage in social engineering rather than being involved in trying to make sure the banking system doesn't fail. And so there's that, there's that whole strain on the left that the banking system is nothing more than a means to create an end. 
It's not the way to create free flow of commerce. Was this the woman ended up a de deputy? That's who I'm deputy talking about. secretary of treasury. She's married to Jamie Raskin. Uh, oh, oh, oh! Our last name's Raskin. Emily? No, her not. Her name isn't Raskin. They did. Oh, you're right. You're right. Um, I don't remember her name. Anyway, I, she got. I, she I didn't know, get in. She didn't get in because of the radical view. Right. But I, I think. Uh, but, that, but the point is, but it's that coming. is now. That is now. It's coming. It's you know. At some point, we talked about the Overton window, and the Overton window would tell you you stretch you stretch the credulity by putting somebody who's so radical out there that people say you can't do that. But the next time somebody with the same ideas are out there, suddenly they become a little more credible. I want to start using the Overton window all the time. I mean, Kenny's our producer here. You're going to, have to get bored with this, but the Overton window was when did it come into existence? Fifty years ago, yeah. by some really interesting writer, and said that. There's a there's a there's a, a life of ideas, which is where, and the Overton window, I guess, is sort of like a Venn diagram or a circle like that, where an idea starts out as something that's absolutely reprehensible, far-fetched, it'll never happen, don't even talk about it. And then some people start socializing it, and then it becomes, well, that's really out there, but maybe, and then it becomes something like, well, gee, maybe we ought to start thinking about that because such and such. And then it becomes, well, maybe, is there a way to make this policy? And then it becomes law. Right. And so look at the trans bathrooms we have now. 15 years ago, 20 years ago, would you talk about a trans bathroom? No. no. And would, you talk about that, a, would you talk about a biological boy going to a biological girl's uh, bathroom in fifth grade? Exactly. So, so I, what my thought is we got to use that same sort of thinking for some radical change to some of these institutions that we're so 100%. troubled by. 100%. And that's really, all of our arguing tends to be about that, trying to figure out how do we really fix this. I think we got to go big. We do have to go big. And one of Robert's ideas that is uh, good, I'll let him tell you, tell you talk, talk about the housing idea. Um, everything that the Fed's holding, um, that's about uh, the $2.6 of mortgage-backed securities, Fannie and Freddie, that's about 28 million homes on, in the GSEs, plus the public housing system. They could just do, you could just end the Soviet style, the government is our landlord system, just by turning title over to the current tenants of any government-financed housing. And that's what Poland did. That's what some of the former Soviet republics did, because at the time of the Soviet Union collapsing, there was no private housing market. Um, but I think you would get a lot rid of a lot of the debt overhang in the, in the banking system right now. And it seems like they they were anxious to get rid of their mortgage-backed securities in 2008. Are these privately owned and financed by Fannie and Freddie, or are they are they government housing? It's, it's they're super, GSEs. Uh, here's what we here's what we kind of bounce off of each other. I limit it to when I when I talk about this. I limit it to FHA has foreclosures. Okay, you got Fannie and Freddie who have foreclosures. You have the you have the whole public housing system. If you took the foreclosures and you, and you did a deal and you put the foreclosures into the hands of the locals to then figure out how to deal with their homeless populations and to deal, deal with that, get the federal government out of the business of owning homes. We have, we've, we've got more housing stock than we know what to do with, and we have the capacity to solve so many problems if we just let that housing stock be used where people know how to use it, know what to do with it. And so that's a, it seems to me that getting us out of that also has the, the happy uh, occurrence of when you also get rid of Fannie and Freddie, you get rid of the GSEs, what you end up doing is you actually create a private mortgage banking system again where we aren't essentially having our mortgages sold to Fannie and Freddie before, um, you know, the minute we, we write the, we, or the uh, refinance. And Wells Fargo is merely somebody who's processing the mortgage and they aren't actually the people who hold the mortgage. Let's have a private mortgage finance system. Let's create real competition. Let's create a system that actually competes for our business and acts like a private entity as opposed to a government-controlled entity. That's how you save the banking system is you reprivatize them. How, right would, you, now, how, how, how would you do that? Well, in terms of the, in terms of the Fannie Freddie thing, in terms yeah. of the house. Congress would have to do it. Con Congress has to do that. And what you have to do is you have to get a, a, somebody elected president who says, this is the big idea solution that, for one of the things we want to do. Uh, Margaret Thatcher tried it in, in well, Great Britain. Yeah, well, I, you know, I wrote the Treasury uh, Transition Plan in 2016, and that was one of our centerpiece items. 
shut down Fannie and Freddie, get mm -hmm. us out of that business. That was eight, almost eight years ago. I think there's liquidity And Steve Mnuchin concerns. was hardly a champion of that idea. Well, we, you know, the fact of the matter is, and, and he, was not, goes, he was not a champion. This goes to the, the Trump transition, which I was also on. I know, you were at labor? I, I was at labor. Yeah. And I was surprised. I met with uh, the head of OMB at some point in about the first year. And he says, oh, well, we need to have you guys, all you conservative guys, tell us the things that are wrong and all the things you need to do. And I asked him. We, we produced a series of books, the transition team, a series of books from the floor to the ceiling. Very smart people, real knowledge. Has anybody read them? Okay, is anybody even aware of them? And the fact is the Trump transition, the challenge with the Trump, the policy part of the Trump transition is it didn't equate the people actually had to do it. Okay, the people were actually, the implementers inside. In other words, the transition that we were involved with was a catastrophe. <laughs> I, I would say that the ideas that came out of it. It was frustrating. It was frustrating. I would say that the ideas that came out of it were very valuable. Well, they're great ideas. Uh, but but the fact is you have to marry the ideas with the personnel. Because as Reagan said, personnel and, and policy. Trump, and here's, Trump's big and My theory is here's what's happened. Trump's up in Trump Tower. Right. You've got all of us down in Washington. We are, you know, we're very bright, movement-oriented people. Know a lot. We write these great plans, and Trump's attitude was, well, these people are Washington people. They're not, they're not New York people like me. And so he basically discounted almost all the work that was done by the transition. And it was if a big was mistake. It. it was a big mistake. It was a big mistake. Um, and because we had the same goal as he did, would drain the swamp and limit the size and scope of federal government. And it was a, and there was a lot of good stuff there. It's stuff you could reject. But there's a lot of good stuff in there, and we didn't. And I don't think anybody who came in, unless they were in the transition team, the policy part of it, didn't use it. Not a single one of them knew it. And the failure of the system, and this just gets down to the way the policy works, they protected every single cabinet secretary from knowing anything the transition team did, because they didn't want them to have to answer any questions on it. They wanted to say, "Oh, well, I'm not sure." Oh gosh, I remember that. And so, consequently, I remember that we had these briefing books, and they couldn't use them because they, they didn't couldn't use anything that have actually, ownership of the right. So the idea was to so they could be ignorant and not say anything. They were <laughs> and couldn't be held accountable. The yeah. idea was, "Oh, we just have to get them confirmed." So they get confirmed two and a half, three months later. Yeah. And so they're trying to hit the ground running, but they don't have a. But the existing system just kept rolling. So yeah. at that point, they're not agents of change. They're agents of just trying to make, keep the keep all the squirrels going in the right direction. And that's not how you drain the swamp. You drain the swamp, you make real change by having pe the leaders bought into the change and having them driving it from day one. Yeah, well, and we didn't have that with our cabinet secretaries, and well, it was, a, once again, a, a failure the way we did the transition. Well, to go back to the GSEs, though, and how to privatize Back them. to what we're supposed to be talking about? Well, no, just the board system. I have lost track. <laughs> well, just think of the challenge there, right? So, like, yeah. do you, would, even if you wanted to privatize Fannie and Freddie, and that's 28 million homes right there, do you want to just turn that o title over to uh, the woke banking system that's all driven by equity? I'd say don't trust them. Um, and, but who and, do we trust, Robert? I trust the people who are in those homes. Okay, and I, trust you know, I, I, trust I, the I would agree with that. We got to we got to treat people as adults, and they, if you give them something, they might take care of it. I they think might they rent would. it out. They might improve it. They yeah, might, yeah. Um, and that's exactly what happened in the former Soviet republics. A, a private banking system and a private property system was put into place overnight in a country that in countries that hadn't uh, known it for more than fifty years. And I think if we can get out of the Soviet-style system, we'll get rid of the corporatist-style um, banking system that we have right now that I believe does not have our liberty, our interest of liberty at heart. I think that they want to take away our liberty, and they're doing it by restricting what we can, you know, what you can purchase. Like you were mentioning, the gun shops that are being targeted. I think that's exactly where this is going. I don't trust them one iota because they haven't proven that they deserve my trust. One well of the, said. One of the great. We got to wrap about, it up here. So one of the great things that we know is, consolidated uh, power always corrupt is corrupted. So the best way to do it is to blow it up, and have, not so, figure it out. Tell, tell us, uh, do a little ad for Americans for Limited Government. Your, sure. your, 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 I love your mission. What's your mission? Yeah. Um, our mission is to, to limit size and scope in government at all levels. And it's and a maximize individual maximize freedom. Maximize individual freedom, absolutely. Treat people like we are, adults. We essentially, we essentially look at the Constitution, the Declaration of Independence, and say that's the DNA of the country, and yeah. that's what we're defending. Yeah. And we defend it at every turn. And you know, and truthfully, it's hard because every mechanism in DC is against that. 
but it's a but it's a great mission. And you know, believe it or not, folks, sometimes we win. So that's we it. do. I'm with you. So Robert, I guess you gave, you gave a great summary there. Do you want another oration? That uh... um, well, you could just check us out at DailyTorch.com. That's where we post our op-eds. Oh, we have Tony. And you Brunk. also publish. Uh, where, where do you? I get an email feed from you. Right. Is that every day you're writing something? That's DailyTorch.com. Yeah, I, I probably have written more than three thousand articles for Americans for Limited Government since two thousand and eight. And where do we find you guys? Again, that's dailytorch.com. That's where you will get the uh, written op-eds and Tony Bronco cartoons. We also do a lot of videos now um, that we're, uh, you know, getting into The that. cartoons are great fun. Oh, yes. absolutely. Yeah. Tony Bronco's brilliant. He's yeah. A, uh, and most people have seen him on Fox News because Fox News picks him up because he's free. I pay for him. They get it for free. Figure that out. But it's a, they get my cartoons for free. But the point is, this is one of the things that, that I think matters because we send this to every editorial Board in the country every day. We send it to the broadcasters, talk radio people all across the country every day. Every member last of year, Congress. Last year, I was in 250,000 radio markets last year alone. So there's a, this stuff reaches, we're reaching people. And our goal is not to just do the, your job will drop. Our goal is to get people to understand what actually is going on in the world and check it out. We put sources in it. We, we encourage people to click read the, the link, bill. read, read the, the bill, read the regulations. Engage, yeah. Don't trust Engage. the politicians don't, to And don't trust you. us, yeah. okay? Do your own research, but we provide the means to do so. Yeah. And as a result, we hope to make people smarter and better advocates for their own freedom, whether we exist or not. And the members of Congress, too. They need that information because I believe they're getting bad information every, right we now. We do send it to every, every member of Congress as well. Um, well, we, we used to send it to the administration, but they don't take it anymore. We've got a lot of dangling stuff that we ever we need to follow up. The big cliffhanger is we didn't talk about even non-bank alternatives for financing, and there's a big market emerging out there because of all the bad stuff. Right. Anyway, we got to wrap it up. To be continued. How's that? Very good. Uh, this has been the Bill Walton Show, and I've been here with uh, Rick Manning and Robert Romano of Americans for Limited Government in a in a wide-ranging conversation where I think we've covered a lot. But it, but the essence really is that we. We do need to be concerned about our banking system and its threat to liberty, um, which is something that's not always been on the horizon, but it should be now. Uh, so anyway, stay, stay tuned for upcoming shows. As you know, we're on uh, all the major podcast platforms and YouTube and Rumble. We're on CPAC now on Monday nights. Uh, we've now publishing on Substack, where we're getting a very nice following, and also obviously on our website, thebillwaltonshow.com. And there's opportunities there, particularly in Substack, to send your comments about what you think about what we're, what we're talking about here and offer up suggestions about uh, next shows we ought to be focusing on. Anyway, so thanks for, for tuning in with, uh, with Rick and Robert and hope you enjoyed it and we'll be talking uh, soon. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. Want more? Click the subscribe button or head over to thebillwaltonshow.com to choose from over 100 episodes. You can also learn more about our guest on our Interesting People page. And send us your comments. We read everyone, and your thoughts help us guide the show. If it's easier for you to listen, check out our podcast page and subscribe there. In return, we'll keep you informed about what's true, what's right, and what's next. Thanks for joining.